seventh episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, such as animated videos, graphic novels, and living history events. Today, we are joined by Dr. Naomi Wolf. Before I then get into introducing uh, Dr. Wolf, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, please use the comment section to type in your questions. If you keep them short, we'll be able to get to as many of them as possible. Dr. Naomi Wolf is a New York Times bestselling author columnist and political activist. She received her doctorate in, in the English language and literature from Oxford University. Uh, she, she's taught at George Washington University and Stony Brook University following the publication of her first book, The Beauty Myth, Dr. Wolf became a leading advocate of what's described as third wave feminism. She served as an advisor to the presidential campaigns of Bill Clinton and Al Gore. She has published 10 books, including The End of America, My Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot, and one of my favorites, Outrages, Sex Censorship and the Criminalization of Love. Of course, uh, most recently, she's become a fierce and consistent critic of COVID lockdowns and mandates uh, with personal experience in the censorship of such uh, criticism resulting in her being deplatformed by Twitter in June of last year. Dr. Wolf, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. So your, well, your work and scholarship has covered so many different areas from feminism to reproductive rights to surveillance concerns and freedom of speech. Uh, we could do an entire interview on each subject, but to start with the topical, uh, as mentioned, you've become perhaps uh, the leading critic of, of lockdowns and of mandates. Um, how did your concern, it, it, it's, you know, now that I've read uh, some of your more recent books, I can see the connections. But maybe if you would uh, share with our viewers, when did this uh, concern, you know, begin, and what has been um, the reception to your criticism? Thank you. Um, so I I do see a through line. Of course, I I know you know. I'll say this. Um, for all of my books and all these concerns, the core is basic human liberty, basic human rights. I mean, in my view, feminism is nothing more than, you know, the gender prism on basic human rights. And the book I wrote in 2008 called The End of America, which I think you mentioned, um, it was the first kind of call to alarm that I issued when I saw the degradation of democracy in our country. And I studied uh, other moments in history, other times and places when uh, a, a free society was under attack. And I found that there were 10 things that totalitarian rulers always did or would be totalitarian rulers, whether they were on the left or the right, they always took the same 10 steps. So I, I kind of laid that out on a map. And unfortunately, the last 12 years have seen us moving you know, and it is nonpartisan, I want to stress, you know, moving, it, you know, Bush advanced it, you know, uh, Obama advanced it, Trump advanced it, although not as much as people think to his, I mean, credit, I can't believe I'm saying that, you know, and now we're hurtling under a, an administration that I voted for, um, not just toward the abyss, but I've been starting to say we're, we're over the abyss, the, the coup has has happened in, in, in many ways. And one of the things I point out in the end of America is that people have a misconception about how democracies topple. You know, they've seen a lot of movies, they think it's like, you know, columns goose-stepping in the streets and or, you know, Tiananmen Square. But most uh, free societies that fell, fell gradually and incrementally and 
So now we've got all around us, you know, some states that are sort of under emergency law, actually 47 states are under emergency law, believe it or not, but some states where you can't, I just had an email from someone saying in Eugene, Oregon, there were security police in a farmer's market to make sure you were wearing your mask properly, right? Some states where citizens literally cannot breathe the way they want to, in other states like Florida, they're still kind of a constitutional republic as, as we remember it from before 2020. Um, so that's the through line. Every one of these books has talked about personal liberty and human rights. I guess the thing that astonishes me about this particular assault, uh, you know, not just, I'm not just going to say assault because it's over, right? This murder of human rights. I mean, it's over. It's not like that's the end of the battle, but, you know, the coup has taken place, as I've said. What amazes me is that as a feminist, I can't believe how many people on my side of the aisle, my tribe, you know, people I've been around my whole life who are so consistent. And I'm talking about the elite left, obviously, right? you know, who are so consistent on equality for you know, marriage equality, LGBTQ rights, racial equality. Um, so right on about, you know, organic food, so aware of how big pharma can be bad when it comes to, you know, uh, silicone breast implants or, you know, hysterectomies that are unnecessary or, or, you know, the wrong dose of hormones and birth control pills. So many sophisticated people are lining up to create a discrimination society that is pretty much exactly like other discrimination societies that they boycotted in their college years in, in South Africa or other places. It's so much like Jim Crow laws, so much like being a Jew in Vichy France, you know, like France, I'm so sorry. Um, there's like no distinction. And so I guess that's a long way of saying the through line is human liberty. And I'm, I'm kind of shocked. I feel like I, I haven't changed. I've been saying the same things absolutely consistently for 12, you know, for 35 years, really, since I wrote my first book. And I'm kind of astonished that I'm the people I'm talking to these days are, you know, the Atlas Society. I thought Ayn Rand was evil. Um, you know, conservatives, libertarians, I'm on Fox News. This is not like I respect it and I love it. And I'm glad to talk to whoever will talk to me about freedom. But I'm astonished to be standing in exactly the same place as the world has changed around me. Well, uh, you know, we're always looking for silver linings. And if there is a silver lining in all of this, if uh, we could get the great feminist scholar and critic, Dr. Naomi Wolf, to give Ayn Rand another look as a possible uh, feminist icon deserving of respect for breaking a whole bunch of, of norms and celebrating uh, strong sexually liberated uh, women and female um, businesswomen in her in her novels, then that will be at least something to be thankful for. And you um, know, I'll have to do that now, right? <laughs> There's no question. And I will. I I can I can assist. So uh, it, it is curious. I mean, because I think that I don't want to get too off uh, the the beaten path here, but. Um, you know, when you look at some things that cause mania, you know, that cause like a seemingly exaggerated response, and Ayn Rand is is one of them. Um, mm. And as a a Jewish a refugee who came to America with nothing and and uh, made something of herself, um, how it's become that she's she's like a lightning rod, particularly mm. for the for the left. Uh, but anyway, well, for another discussion. Um, so but digging into to that, you know, pointing out that through line in in your work, finding yourself, you know, surprised to be uh, talking among, you know, the Jeffrey Tuckers and and uh, other libertarians of of the world. Um, you know, you you are a lifelong Democrat. I I was a Democrat until uh, until I went to college. Actually, um, you've been an advisor to two Democratic presidential candidates. Why do you think that you know your friends and your allies and your your colleagues or former colleagues um, and looking now at, at Democratic uh, governors who have opted for some of these most severe aggressive punishing lockdowns and mandates. Is it 
just politics. Uh, you know, if, if it had been the other side would, it's, if, if Trump had been for, for lockdowns, would Democrats have been for, uh, for more, you know, freedom? Or is there maybe something uh, deeper in the, the underlying principles of the two major parties that have led to different stances when it comes to these non-pharmaceutical interventions? Great question. Um, just a note, I didn't advise two presidential candidates. I advised one presidential candidate and one campaign. Okay. So I was not an advisor to President Clinton directly. Um, okay, so globally, right? May I say JAG, is that what I can call you? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Globally, it is not a partisan issue and people have to see that. Um, there's a meta nation state script and more and more of it is being revealed a year ago, that sounded like a conspiracy theory, but it's kind of fully documented and we've been tracking the relationships that are uh, operating really above the level of nation states. Um, so you see that Boris Johnson is locking everyone down and suppressing liberties in the cradle of liberty, you know, the United Kingdom, I mean, one of the cradles of liberty. You see in France, Macron, who's a centrist, allegedly, he's saying, I'm, my job is to you know, piss, I'm sorry, infuriate, I'll use that euphemism, the unvaccinated to the end, whatever that means, quite terrifying. And if you're not vaccinated, you can't get on a long distance train in France. Um, in in Italy, uh, there are severe lockdowns. In Austria, you know, Angela Merkel is, you know, wasn't, uh, I, she's not, you know, in alignment with left or right in the United States, in Canada, you know, they are, <laughs> They are creating concentration. I mean, they're creating detention centers in Canada. People um, are are saying that unvaccinated people, leaders are saying unvaccinated people shouldn't get health care. Uh, you see this madness in country after country, in spite of what is nominally the um, you know the party politics, the ideology, and the heartbreaking thing. I mean, so many people I'm kind of in alignment with these days. For my whole adult life, I was told were just beyond heinous, what you're seeing in, in country after country is people like Philippot in France or Nigel Farage in Britain, you know, populists are the only ones who, nationalist populists are the ones saying, uh, this is not okay. You know, uh, people you'd, you'd think would be standing up for human liberty are, are, are silent and, it, and it's, it's down to these grassroots populists. I mean, people like Steve Bannon, I'm talking to Steve Bannon every week, you know, I thought, I, I don't agree with him on a lot of policy outcomes, a lot, right? But bizarrely, or or maybe transcendentally, there's this kind of Venn diagram happening around the world, which is shaking out what we thought were the labels that mattered and leaving only, do you want liberty? Or are you okay with serfdom? Um, or are you supporting serfdom? So I just wanted to say that. That said, in the United States, there is a very, very horrific situation. Um, I don't think it'll be, I don't think we're going to be out of the woods if the Democrats get, you know, upended in the midterms. I'm not a Republican. I'm an independent at this point. But the same thing could happen to Republicans that has happened to Democrats. And I'll get to that in a minute. But right now in the United States, it is true. And we've, again, mapped this data um, that there is a a really unholy 360 degree alliance between the Democratic Party, the DNC, and big tech, um, and big tech money, and China. And so, and, and a lot of this money is flowing into uh, nonprofits. And this is kind of a loophole that hasn't really been examined or identified. And from the nonprofits, it's flowing to uh, boards of health, it's flowing to school boards, and it's flowing to um, governors and 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 elected officials, um, and it's it, they've, these nonprofits have very benign sounding names like you know CSTE, the you know Commission for State and Territorial Epidemiologists. It's a nonprofit that's managing CDC data to serve the agenda of the Biden administration, which is serving the agenda of you know Microsoft and big tech and intellectual ventures, which is kind of Silicon Valley kind of stranglehold of investment in technology. You've got Google harvesting COVID um, 
test login data. You've got uh, Amazon and Microsoft uh, owning the management of the COVID dashboards, which I, I run a tech company. Um, this has been driving me crazy. All those dashboards that all this policy is based on that are scaring everyone to death. They're on the front page of the New York Times. No one gets to see that raw data. And when I had leaked to me the raw data for the Johns Hopkins dashboard, which everyone is referencing, um, and which is funded by Bloomberg, who's an invest, you know, who's who invests, right? It's uh, only six states were reporting, so it's it's flawed data or it's incomplete data. I mean, I've deconstructed all the dashboards again, not to go down a rabbit hole, but what you find is a complete circle in which the management of the data related to the pandemic is in the hands of big tech and big tech is aligning, as you see from the email from Mark Zuckerberg to Dr. Fauci, right? About, gee, let's invest in vaccines, right? Um, in a complete 360 degree circle. And then you've got Microsoft building and Salesforce building the vaccine passports, right? Or Hewlett Packard in the case of New York State, the Excelsior vaccine passport. And that, and I'm a tech CEO, all that data is more valuable than gold or than oil. And whoever controls all that data is really gonna be more powerful than any nation state, more powerful than the UN, more powerful than the WHO, right? So what we see is these kind of circles of embeddedness. Um, and of course, all of this serves China or China benefits in ways that I don't have to go into, but uh, many distinguished people like Michael Spalding, I'm sorry, Michael uh, Sanger and General Spalding have documented how uh, the CCP has invested in kind of surrounding our influence centers like Hollywood and sports teams and universities with their influence. So that affects messaging. You're seeing more and more messaging that's confusing and disorienting Americans, right? About how America is bad or American values are bad or Western values are bad or freedom is bad. Um, and the, you know, and, and messages that are that my people are absorbing with great alacrity in a way that's terrifying, that the individual is nothing. You know, you have to sacrifice your body and your destiny and your future to the collective. And if you don't, you get shunned in this very uh, kind of CCP style, Stalinist style, you know, pre-Nazi style sort of way. So that's the circle. And I just wanna give one tiny little new piece of evidence. Shocking, right? This is my, um, I invested in, in uh, like good stocks, right? Like my amalgamated bank, it's right on bank and they have this kind of fossil fuel free portfolio. And I thought, well, I wanna be a good citizen of the planet. So what we're seeing is social justice being kind of merged into all these corporate um, missions. And so this says you we're only gonna invest we're not going to invest in companies that provide significant financial support to socially conservative institutions. They lump that in with, we won't invest in animal cruelty. We won't invest in, you know, pollution. We won't invest in child labor. Supporting conservative institutions is one of the things that uh, is, is leading a, a you know, big established bank like Amalgamated to move their money, um, a, a portfolio uh, like Adasana, which is a, a, a all cap global ETF to to shun, you know, to to create almost a boycott of conservative ideas, and you you see this across the board in, in institution after institution. So that's my quick roundup. It's an unholy alliance that has bought the Democrats, and it's coming down from the top. And at a state level, I'm in touch with many state legislators because of my work on Daily Clout, and they say like, you know, we used to be able to work with our Democratic colleagues. They were very reasonable, and now it's almost like they're scared. They can't deviate. And there's vast sums. Like, and the last thing I'll say is people are baffled by the rigidity with which school boards are torturing American children with, like, masking and, you know, excluding them from sports if they're not vaccinated, even if there's no law in place or no regulation in that state. And uh, millions, in the case of Ichabod Crane, over $2 million is going from legislation that the Biden administration passed to school boards in order, they only get the money if they stick to the COVID protocols. And so there, there's a destruction of our children, um, which I think is very intentional, as well as destruction of other institutions 
uh, in a way that ultimately is going to serve big tech and serve our adversary, the CCP. So uh, just to return to, to that um, investment notification that you had uh, received. So this was a fund that um, you wanted to make sure you, you didn't want to be investing in fossil fuel companies. Fossil fuels, that's all okay. it's called, fossil fuel free. And, and it's saying that it will also not be investing in companies that may be supporting conservative institutions? Correct. Wow. Okay. Provide significant financial support to socially conservative institutions, which is a very broad category. That could be you, you yeah. know, or that could be my friend Jeffrey Tucker. We're not conservative, but like, you know, in, in somebody's uh, estimation, we're, we're not on, on the left, so. No, but I guess my point uh, is just that. I wish I could that. say that we were receiving huge, you know, large corporate donations, but um, we're not, so. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is what the Nazis did, right? Mm -hmm. They, and the medical stuff is what the Nazis did. They, they flowed all the power and all the money to in, institutions that aligned with their ideology and it impoverished and marginalized everyone who didn't. And so what this sort of thing does, and I'm seeing it in legislation, which I read week by week as CEO of Daily Cloud, is all this money is flowing to like the Green New Deal blew my mind. I thought I wanted to vote for it. It flows billions in different iterations to frontline communities, which are defined as democratic constituencies, basically. And never in America have we said, oh, you're a person of color. We're going to, you know, discriminate in favor of you. That's always been illegal, just like discriminating against people of color has been illegal since, since 1964, since the Civil Rights Act. So, there's this massive kind of, um, you know, I'm just going to say a plan because I've worked in politics at the highest levels, and this is a game plan to direct, you know, billions and billions from government and the private sector, right, toward uh, the Democratic Party's own constituency. And then the Democratic Party is doing things that serve our adversaries and that serve big tech. Who are you, mentioned, you mentioned uh, Daily Clout. Um, would love to hear more about what it is uh, and, and how it can provide people who feel, you know, powerless, who, who feel that they, they're, they're frustrated, but they, they don't know what to do. Um, you have uh, various campaigns, if I understand, for political action, including ones designed to push back against, for example, school closures or lockdowns. So what's your model and how can people get involved? Thank you so much for asking. So I started Daily Clout, I co-founded it because I saw how people were being excluded from uh, the, the process of passing, drafting and passing legislation. Um, and I knew the solution had to be digital. So it's a digital platform that lets anyone draft a bill <laughs> and pass a bill. But it, we also have this beautiful piece of technology. It's a legislative database called BillCam, which has every state and federal bill. And you can find any state and federal bill. Like if you wanna know about vaccine passports, you can do a search and boom, you've got all the, you know, you've got a transparent view of all the vaccine passport legislation, state and federal, but it's also interactive. You can send any of those bill cams, we call them through social media. And you can tweet the bill sponsor, tweet the rep, you can vote, you know, and show your support or opposition. Um, and this has really moved the dial. Uh, it, it ends legislation in smoke-filled rooms. Um, and it also lets people inform each other very transparently what's in a bill. You know, so many of them are vast and written to confuse people. And this way, you know, we can, we, we start with an easy to follow blog, like we're very much like you in explaining complicated things in easy to follow blogs and videos and infographics. Our focus is legislation and democracy. And so we can say, okay, they're saying this healthcare bill covers breast cancer screenings, but on page 60, you see that it doesn't. And then people can send the actual bill through social media and take a look for themselves. Um, it's so empowering. I could mention any number of times this has changed outcomes, but specifically today is very important. Um, we at Daily Cloud, because we read the bills, we read the regulations, 
we notified people that there was a meeting in Washington state in which they were the health board, the board of health was discussing a regulation that would, that does give boards of health, basically police forces and the right to quarantine and detain people if they've been exposed to a contagious disease, right? In, indefinitely uh, at pending a court order, right? The, the per, and the person has to behave while they're in detention um, and, you know, without charge or trial. Uh, and so this is such a recipe for catastrophic outcomes in the militarization of Washington state, because whenever societies have these powers, people covet their neighbor's land or people want to drive their competitors into bankruptcy. And they're like, oh, you know, John was exposed to a contagious disease. You'll have to put him in detention. So we alerted people and we read the regulation, which is boring, but, you know, we've gotten really good at it. And, you know, Washington state was saying, oh, there's misinformation on social media. A thousand percent. WAC 100-070, gives the Board of Health police powers. And if the police don't go along, it's a crime. And a thousand percent, it was correct. So we warned people and there was such an outcry. And I announced it on the war room. There was such an outcry that Washington state claimed they were backing off and not uh, not reviewing that regulation. But this is like the you know eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We have to do this. So the other thing I'm going to share is that Bill Cam has is now launching next week a basically a Facebook competitor um, where you can organize cold campaigns, where you can organize your own campaign, invite people to be part of your campaign. You can embed your bill if it's legislative into your campaign and you can lobby um, and and you don't need a million dollars to be a, a lobbyist or to be a, a, a grassroots political or social movement now. So we go to uh, just Google Daily Cloud, or you know, we'll, we'll also put the the website in uh, in the various comment uh, streams and get a get an account and choose a campaign. Is that how it works? So right now, campaigns launches on the fifteenth, but right now on Daily Cloud, you can, you know, Bill Cam is free. You can just sign up as a subscriber on DailyCloud.io and start. You know, start using Bill Cam. You can find anything on Bill Cam. You can send those bills through social media, and in a week, you should be able to start your own campaigns account. So there's a lot to do already. And I just want to mention one of the most important campaigns we've done um, in the last six months is the Five Freedoms campaign at the request of our our users. And this was fought. We hired a lawyer, and we drafted five model bills. Uh, no mask mandates, no vaccine passports, open schools now, uh, freedom of assembly and end emergency law. And due to the mobilization of our users and, and others, you know, grabbing those model bills um, and our networking with state legislators, and we literally go to New Hampshire, to Michigan, to uh, Oregon, to be there at the, at the state legislative session with our little video camera, uh, so they know we're watching, right? Um, 33 states have passed no vaccine mandate legislation. And it was barely a thing when we started warning people about it in April of last year. So we had mentioned uh, some possible silver linings and you've talked about how um, some of these policies set dangerous precedents, which could be used in you know, all kinds of future crises. Um, but are there ways in which the current crisis has brought people together across, you know, partisan lines. I mean, we talked about, unfortunately, that there is a bit of a partisan divide on this, but um, your, your perspective on coalition building, I know that this began with uh, your uh, involvement in a group, I think it was in New York, um, meeting with nuns and, and other people across uh, the, the aisle on the abortion issue and that kind of um, helped you to maybe think about them differently, maybe not think about the issue differently, but find common ground and, uh, and craft, um, you know, some, some kind of positions that you could both agree on. So is that possible for, for, for this issue? Too? Well, I definitely think, sorry, I definitely think there's a, a massive re 
awakening of some kind going on right now. There's also a massive hypnosis going on yeah. at the same time, depending on whom you're talking to. Um, and I do see a big realignment. Um, and I hope that what comes out of it leaves party labels, can't really leave them behind, but, but keeps them almost in quotation marks. Um, because, you know, as having been on the inside, those labels just serve to protect both sides who are insiders doling out stuff to their respective, you know, cronies. Um, and they serve to distract people. I mean, one, one thing I absolutely learned as a political insider is that the hot button issues that were directed to like, you know, LGBT, like, like trans issues, right. Or, or abortion rights or, you know, that should there be Santa, you know, in a public setting, these are all like, they're worth discussing, of course, but they're all really tangential to the bills that we read week after week in which, which are bipartisan bills quietly going through in which billions of dollars are being just stolen from the American people, siphoned off by both sides and handed out to their respective donors or supporters. Um, so I, I do think we are in for a grassroots awakening that is hopefully nonpartisan or that wears partisanship very lightly. I hope, but more urgently, I think we are gonna have to literally re remake some institutions because they're corrupt all the way through. I mean, Gates money and pharma money literally bought the media. You know, the, 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 when I was deplatformed, it seems like a Twitter spokesperson went to many major news outlets, gave them out of context or false, you know, statements attributed to me and they all ran it and, and were, were not accountable and they couldn't be accountable because as the Columbia Journalism Review has, has shown, you know, each of them has accepted from the BBC to NPR to the Guardian millions of dollars in, in Gates funding for COVID education. So that leads to certain kinds of coverage. They're not free to say the pandemic is over, right? Or Omicron is, is really not that serious, says the South African Minister of Health. Um, so yes, I do think we're in a time when we are going to have to, after this is torn down from top to bottom and the corruption exposed and the criminals, you know, tried and sent to prison, presumably, um, we're going to have to remake technology. Uh, and that's why I'm really excited about platforms like Getter, platforms like, you know, not Telegram because they have a fake Naomi Wolf account that they're not doing anything about, but, um, you know, Gab and Rumble and, and all of these usurpers to the big three, right? That's so important. But I'm also excited about all of the people writing substacks, all the people writing blogs, all the people doing their own, making their own media. Um, but lastly, we can't have a renaissance till people understand how important human space is. And what I mean is we've been encouraged by big tech and certainly the lock, lockdowns to be scared of gathering in human spaces, but also to believe technology is better than human, what humans can do by themselves. But actually, and I'm speaking as a tech CEO, human capabilities are superior in ways that they don't want you to know. And so what I mean is when people gather in a room at a dinner party, um, that is a supersonic way to communicate education that, in a way that can't be hacked. You know, whereas to my astonishment, state legislatures are meeting on Zoom or Microsoft, you know, completely feeding every single item on the agenda to CCP or to Microsoft, right? Um, when you gather in a town hall, you can inform each other in a much more nuanced and multivalent way than you can in a Zoom town hall, right? Where the moderator can restrict what you're doing. Um, and also people get hardened you know, in ways that are almost metaphysical or that we can't really explain by being in human spaces, um, feeling human warmth and creating those friendships. So I really, you know, one, one thing we're starting on, on Daily Cloud is 
Um, we're going to have meetups where people can just gather in, in human spaces and recreate human community, you know, playdates, potlucks, for, for Lord's sake, you know, and to sort of reprivilege the human because when people assemble, and history shows this, um, tyrants uh, tremble. So I'd love, with your permission, Dr. Wolf, to turn to your career as a feminist. You, as I mentioned, have been described as the leading spokeswoman of third wave feminism um, since the publication of uh, The Beauty Myth, your first book. So for our viewers, what, what is third wave feminism and, and would you embrace that title? Yeah, sure. Um, I. Uh, yeah, I'm proud of having been part of that conversation. Um, third wave feminism, very briefly, I, I made up the phrase and um, another writer made up the phrase at about the same time. So I guess that just goes to show that sometimes movements that are ready to happen just need a, you know, need a, you need to say it's happening in order for it to happen. But um, Second wave feminism was my mother's generation, which was sort of, you know, Betty Friedan, uh, Gloria Steinem, um, the 70s, the great kind of post, you know, feminine mystique uprising of mostly middle class or upper middle class, mostly white women. And that was a, a weakness movement, um, but it was a very important movement and, and it was responsible for, you know, all the great benchmarks, Title IX, Title VII. Uh, co-education, um, women entering professions, uh, and, and concepts that are critical, like, you know, you shouldn't rape your wife, or you shouldn't beat your wife, or, uh, you know, consent is good, um, and reproductive rights, you know, whatever you think about them. Um, so there was this kind of latent or dormant period in the 80s where nothing much was happening. And, and gender issues were being kind of sidelined. And that happens cyclically. Women are always told that they're, they don't really have any problems and their problems are not important and they can stop worrying about it now. Um, but I wrote The Beauty Myth in the early 90s. And I basically was talking about how ideals of beauty, this seems like such a golden age of not that serious a problem, as serious as it was, but, um, you know, that ideals of beauty were restricting women of my generation. Uh, and keeping us from being as empowered as we could be, especially with eating disorders, which really was quite serious. Um, so yeah, that's third wave feminism. And it, it was, I, I also did a bit of a, you know, annoyed daughter's critique of second wave feminism because it was kind of joyless at that point and very judgmental. The things that have come back in the left with a vengeance, right? But, you know, very judgmental about sexual choices, you weren't supposed to like fashion, you weren't supposed to, you know, being heterosexual wasn't okay. Um, you know, it was very, uh, it had developed litmus tests, like you have to be pro-choice, you have to be anti-capitalist, you have to be a vegetarian, you know, and, and really feminism is, you know, this great essential um, extension of, you know, the great movement for human rights and liberty from the enlightenment on, you know, from, Mary Wollstonecraft on. So I, I wanted to kind of, you know, shun or get rid of the things that were weighing the, the movement down or the language down and, and kind of open it up and, and especially just let women and men say, I'm going to define this for myself. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. Like maybe I've always been a libertarian. I just never know it. You're an objectivist. I think you're more of an objectivist. That's, that's my... That's my uh, wager. Um, and speaking of objectivism, so at, at the Atlas Society, we promote a um, particular kind of brand of objectivism, open objectivism. And uh, the overriding emphasis is on the individual, uh, individual thought, individual choice, individual action. So uh, I was accordingly struck by uh, one line of criticism against your work over the years, uh, which was, that in the words of one critic uh, of the New Republic, your quote, most dramatic exhortations are appeals to the individual, not society. This particular critic accuses you of waxing positively neoliberal in your contention that uh, the real problem is our lack of choice. In the words of the critic, 
Milton Friedman could not have said it better himself. Now, to some on the left, of course, that might seem like a, a terrible uh, slur, that kind of comparison, but in our community, it would uh, you, you might wear it as a badge of honor. So what, what do you make of that criticism of your being uh, not sufficiently collectivist and uh, more individualistic in your, your work? Well, first I wanna say I've never been talking about consumer choice, right? Um, that's not my priority. Uh, and I do think it's important. I think there's, you know, stupidity on both sides, right? I think it's important for like, especially in the eighties, there was this really dumb brand of post-feminism it was called that kind of predicated itself on the notion that everything and people, you know, it, it, libertarians, I'll, I'll argue this with them, right? Like I argue with my husband because he's more libertarian than I am about these things that, you know, oh, you, you can do it all yourself and it's all about individual responsibility. I agree with a lot of that, but I also think that systemic analyses of racism, gender discrimination, you know, anti-Semitism, historical hurdles, uh, right now anti-vaccination discrimination are really important to, to just not be dumb about what is possible with individual responsibility and what isn't. Um, I mean, that's why I'm always so surprised that libertarians are kind of silent on abortion rights because I don't like abortion. And I wrote a you know, very heartfelt essay called Our Bodies, Our Souls about my struggles around the ethics of abortion. But, you know, it, it, if you don't see that not being able to control your reproduction means women have no control over their futures, you are just not smart enough, you know, honestly. So, uh, you know, I do, I think my books look at that, always that kind of what is the individual and what kind of collective analysis do we need? That said, I, you know, we're in a very dire moment in history where I'm going to, I've always been kind of criticizing free markets and capitalism and for their excesses and, and shining a light on, you know, great things like Sweden's healthcare system, which is great. But right now looking at history and where we are, there is more danger to, to women, to individuals, to children from a collectivist government uh, or a collectivist corporatocracy merging with government, which is the definition of fascism, than from you know, the most rampant individualism and free market you could conceive of. It, you know, with all of its harms and excesses, that women, women are safer you know, when they get to make their individual choices than when a government decides that they can only keep their job if they're injected with uh, an experimental substance, right? Well, Women are safer with all the risks and dangers of unfettered capitalism. Human rights protect us. Individualism, post-enlightenment liberal values, I mean, capital L, classical liberal, humanistic democratic values protect us more than any totalitarian or socialist regime that anyone has ever come up with the, with the best intention stated in the world. Well, I think libertarians uh, may be silent on abortion because there are probably uh, some libertarians that are more um, emphatic on protecting the right of the mother to have agency over her uh, body. And then there are some libertarians on the other side, but objectivists, again, this is why I think you're, you're gonna be a future objectivists and Ayn Rand in particular was anything but silent on reproductive uh, rights. And if anything, her position um, very outspoken uh, on reproductive rights and on a woman's uh, right is, that and her atheism can be a, uh, a, a bit of a stumbling block when I'm trying to reach out to conservative students. Uh, and so I, I do sort of a take what you like and, and leave, leave the rest. But um, now I just wanna to return to another one of your, uh, your most recent book actually, Outrages, Sex Censorship and the Criminalization of Love, uh, published in 2019. I understand it grew out of uh, your doctoral thesis on John Addington Simmons. Um, I now know 
who was Simmons, um, but maybe if you could just tell our viewers and what sparked your interest in, in him and, and um, your research on the subject. Thank you. This is actually my favorite of my books, and I hope everyone reads it because this was a great, great uh, historical figure that history has largely erased. So John Addington Simmons um, was probably the first LGBTQ rights activist and spokesperson in Britain, um, or in English, I should say, because he was also admired in America. And um, he was a mid 19th century uh, upper middle class guy uh, who wanted to spend his life, you know, as a, as a fellow at Oxford and as a poet and as a critic, but his sexuality quickly um, was turned against him in a highly homophobic time and place and in a place where in spite of a lot of um, attacks and smears and controversy when the book came out, I am right, there was a death penalty for sodomy uh, until 1862 in Britain. Um, and uh, that's just absolutely the case. So he was terrified of what would happen if he lived out his life even in a closeted way in Britain. So he exiled himself to Switzerland. He was, he was tubercular, so that was healthier for him. And he kind of found his, his, you know, his great love of his life in Venice. By this time, he was a married man. He had four daughters. He was a respected critic. You know, so he lived this completely dual life in which he kept, I mean, it's so fascinating for a writer to see what happened to him. He kept all of his homoerotic poetry in a locked box in his study. And at one point, his best friend who was also gay, what we would call gay, you know, they went to the, the River Avon and threw away the key, right? But they didn't throw away the documents because these were too precious to him. So his whole life, which was short, right? He died young of tuberculosis. He, he, he tried to articulate the beauty of love between men. You know, he's a great romantic. And he tried to articulate, and he did, in these secret manifestos that he wrote, A Problem with Modern Ethics, or problem of modern ethics and and, um, and and it was like forbidden illegal to pass around he articulated the first really defense of you know the right of homosexuals to live like anyone else protected by the law instead of persecuted by the law um and the last thing i'll say is that oh it's so moving walt whitman who was a lot kind of he was living in a more free place and time the united states uh didn't have laws of the same kind against sodomy, um, he found leaves of grass as a young man. And that speaks very poetically of same-sex love between men. And so Whitman was like this North Star for him, you know, his whole career. And they had this beautiful epistolary relationship, though of course they never met. Um, and so it, it's really about this love between Whitman and Simmons. And then finally, the other unbelievable thing about Simmons is that he kept a kind of secret memoir that told the truths about his life in completely frank, modern, stark detail. But he also kept that embargoed, um, not to be opened until everyone he knew was dead. And he embedded in his memoir- Kind of memoir like the, uh, the, the results of the research on the vaccines. <laughs> right, exactly, 75 years. He embedded in that memoir a code that his posthumous editor could put together uh, to tell the story of his great love, which is um, for this man, Angelo Fusato, a very handsome gondolier. Um, so it's like this beautiful faith that someday the world would catch up with him and there would be readers that would want to read that story and publishers who would want to publish it. So he's just such an amazing kind of exemplar to me of faith in the future, that you don't know what your activism will do in your own lifetime, but he, he really brought about the world that we have today in terms of equal rights for, for people around sexual orientation in many Western countries. Okay, well, I have other questions for you as, as uh, I know I, I uh, gave you a heads up on some of them, but I'm gonna get into big, big trouble with our audience here since we've got a lot of questions. So let's try to get to a few. We have really just uh, 11 minutes left, but um, Mark Zenger asks, Dr. Wolf, uh, can you please speak to the role of the security state in America? It's in partnership with the mainstream media. 
see who become contributors on MSNBC, CNN uh, alone raises serious questions about freedom. Yeah, I mean, he's right. I think I pretty much summarized my best analysis early in our talk, but mm -hmm. it extends to what experts are interviewed on these pharma outlets, MSNBC and CNN, and in the New York Times. Um, my husband, Brian O'Shea, is a very killer researcher and a private detective, and he's found in virtually every case that the you know the mainstream commentators um, like Dr. Hotez, Leanna Wen, they they all are conflicted. You know, if you go back two steps, there there's money flowing to them. There's talking points. And what's heartbreaking is the talking points are aligned with the talking points of our CDC and, you know, even our government spokespeople like Dr. Fauci and, you know, Dr. Collins before he left. So the doctors that I'm in touch with, who are these kind of very brave dissident doctors and epidemiologists like the Great Barrington Declaration signatories, um, but some of those doctors refer to the CDC as as regulatory capture, that the institutions that are supposed to protect us are hostage to um, to pharma, and and by the same token, the news outlets are hostage to pharma um, and hostage to and, and kind of embedded with with the Democrats. This isn't just a Democratic problem, by the way. When Bush was in power, I would go into Fox News and see White House talking points on people's screens. Um, so now you're seeing, you know, White House talking points with different administration on people's screens with different news outlets. So this is why we have to pass laws to, to clean this up. Uh, in, I believe, 2012, the law protecting uh, Americans from being propagandized um, died. And so the floodgates were open for propagandizing us. We need, when I say we need to rebuild institutions, we also need to have, you know, laws, compelling disclosure of conflicts of interest for people who talk to the media. And, uh, and certainly laws keeping elected officials from investing um, in, in in institutions that they're, uh, you know, supporting through policy, which used to be the case when I was a White House spouse. I don't really understand what changed. Yeah. Uh, Gabrielle Aventov on Instagram uh, asks, has social media made things better or worse for keeping governments accountable? That is a great question. Um, on balance, I'd say better, uh, which is why Twitter and, and YouTube have been so determined to censor people um, because it's such an empowering medium. And paradoxically, during the lockdown, uh, you know, people were driven to do exactly what we're doing and new conversations were had and people were, you know, hungrily exchanging information. So digital technologies can certainly enslave us and strip us of democratic access and i've talked about some of the ways but on balance social media has let people from all walks of life get educated well by primary sources and ask good questions armin Breyer on twitter asks are you surprised with the speed with which the biden administration has shifted towards authoritarianism well, oh, such a painful question. I am surprised that this administration did that, even though my husband was warning me, you know, they've got ties to China, they've got ties to China, don't do it, don't do it. I'm like, I cannot, I cannot vote for the other guy. And we can talk about why, you know, it's important because I get asked this all the time. People say, you know, you sound like a Republican, which makes me sad. I think I sound like an American, but um, nothing wrong with Republicans, but I, I like to think the Constitution has no party. But President Trump spoke about women in a way that I, as a survivor, could not. I just couldn't vote for someone who talked that way about sexual assault. And if we're all looking in the mirror, I just I say that, you know, I was raped as a child. I've written about it. I can't you can't ask me to vote for someone who trivializes sexual assault like it's not fair. So. If he were to, you know, come out with an apology and explain that he's learned, and that would change my view. But I, I think as a feminist, it's unjust to ask women to vote for people who so disrespect them in public, their essence. Um, 
and I know people will be mad at me for saying that, but I, I don't care. I have to say it. That said, now we have a full on coup. So two terrible choices. <laughs> um, and, uh, I am not surprised at the speed if someone is going to um, break the back of the country as a democracy, because having studied those moments in history over and over, they speed is essential. Um, they have to happen super fast or else they don't work. And, and shock is part of it. Disorientation is part of it, which is why we're at such an interesting moment, because I think they tried and you know, some very brave people have been resisting and documenting and reporting so effectively that it's not working as well as they thought it would. And when that happens, you start to see what we're starting to see, which is people backpedaling, people confessing, people getting it out there. Richelle Walensky, oh yes, people who died had 8 million comorbidities. They were going to die anyway. You know, they want to get ahead of the, the indictments. It doesn't mean we're out of the woods. It just means that, um, the the more we can make it hard for this to happen quickly the better our chances are of surviving okay uh, quick question from scott Schiff asking about the emails uh between fauci and collins uh criticizing the uh the scientists and calling for a devastating takedown of the great barrington decision i mean this is so important to look at Imagine, I, and I, these are these are friends of mine. I like to say that they are friends. They're they're heroes, and literally the tides of hell are being held back by about twenty four brave people, you know, and, and a lot of other brave people. But you know, in the in the height of the public spotlight, and these gentlemen and Jeffrey Tucker were way out front before anyone else, bravely risking, you know, and getting huge attack by just stating kind of the obvious epidemiological wisdom, public health wisdom for decades, which was protect the vulnerable and everyone else should go about their lives. Um, and they were right. It turns out they were right. You know, so these emails are, should be terrifying because every one of us could imagine emails like that, you know, that Naomi Wolf, we really have to find a way to shut her up. And having worked inside those rooms, the power they have to shut people up is or to smear people is is already massive right so the fact that people sitting at the very pinnacle of the really the only funding for science in america saying let's take out these scientists let's destroy them reputationally um that should terrify all of us especially because these guys were not enriching themselves or exploiting what they were saying they were just trying to avoid you know, millions of deaths, children out of school, um, mental health problems, alcoholism, you know, other preventable deaths, they were doing their job. So it's, um, it's absolutely, I don't, I don't know what to say. It's, it's, it's criminal, it's corrupt, it's fraud, you're not supposed to use our tax dollars to go after American citizens. It's, it's wrong and evil and probably illegal on so many levels, but it's also a very terrifying, um, you know, look at how far this administration will go or these people i should say will go because it's like a, a shadow government in there with that you know the, the, the nih and NIAID, to um to get rid of their adversaries um you know reputationally so that brings us just about to the top of the hour here uh dr wolf um any other thoughts or uh topics that we didn't get to or um, no, I guess I should always end on a, a note of hope. Um, I mean, I guess what I should say to everyone is please, please go outside. You know, I, I know there are limits, but the more you can resist, again, this comes from history, the more you can say, you know, thank you. But I mean, the, the beautiful thing about most mandates is that they can threaten to fine you, but unless the police officer shows up in court, you're not going to get fined. So from history the more people just ignore mandates gather you know do what they do in france have giant picnics in the middle of the street if they won't let you into the restaurants you know if you don't want to wear a mask respect other people's space but i always say you know i have a disability the ada covers me i'm, I'm not gonna wear a mask thank you i'll stand 12 feet away i'll go wherever you want me to but i i can't do that um, the more you inform each other about how to, and we do this on Daily Cloud, how to submit, 
letters to your employer, you know, demanding an exemption, um, just not complying. Uh, what happens is that it costs money to enforce it on a massive level when people simply don't comply, and it it, it wears out those contracts. It exhausts the the um, the, the funds basically uh, that were allocated toward breaking us as a civil society. Um, and also, you know, massive walkouts, um, massive strikes, peaceful resistance. It worked to bring down the Soviet Union and it can work to uh, reestablish us as a republic again. Well, that is a, a wonderful, um, practical and uh, optimistic note on which to end. Dr. Wolf, again, thank you very much. I want to remind all of you, please check out Outrageous uh, as well as the end of America. I think this one, well, both of these actually would have quite a, uh, a libertarian appeal um, and an objectivist one as well. So check those out and um, look forward to uh, having you all come and join us next week for our current events uh, webinar with our faculty scholars. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wolf. Thank you so much. And thank you to the audience. I'm, I'm so thrilled to go back to Ayn Rand now and read what I missed the first time. I'm excited. Yeah. Thank you. I will put together a package for you.